following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you take your Bibles with me and turn again today to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And we will pick up with verse 8 of chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'll read verses 8 to 11. Paul writes, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for all that we've heard already today in the singing of your praise and the hearing of the gospel promise that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins. We thank you for our great Savior. We thank you for the word, your word, that you've given to guide us and direct us in our lives as believers that we might Lord, enjoy this salvation fully and that we might live it out in the world to your honor and praise. And so we pray that you'd grant your spirit to help us as we seek to understand your word today and its relevance to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Martin Luther, most of you have heard of Martin Luther. I'm not talking about Martin Luther King, but Uh, Martin Luther from the Reformation. Uh, He once said, the person who can rightly divide law and gospel, rightly divide law and gospel, has reason to thank God. He is a true theologian. Theodore Beza, the successor of John Calvin in Geneva, to John Calvin in Geneva, he said, ignorance of the distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of all the abuses which corrupt and still corrupt Christianity. Now, brothers and sisters, think about that. Now, listen again to what he says. Ignorance of the distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of all the abuses which corrupt and still corrupt Christianity. Now, if this is true then it's vitally important that we understand this distinction, that we understand the distinction between the law and the gospel and how the two relate to each other and complement each other. So let me ask you then a very simple question. Do you understand the relationship between the law and the gospel? Both for the believer and in the life of the unbeliever, and in the life of the believer. Now, if you're confused about this, this is something, with God's help, 
that you need to get clear about. You must not be content with fuzzy thinking about this. Well, these comments introduce us to the passage we come to this morning in our study of 1 Timothy. It has to do with, as you recall, those of you who have been here, it has to do with false teachers. And one aspect of their false teaching was their wrong use and faulty understanding of the law and therefore of the gospel as well. By way of review, I remind you that Paul is, is gone to Macedonia and he's left Timothy behind in Ephesus to instruct God's people and to set things in order in the church. And the first thing that Paul addresses in this letter is this problem of false teachers. False teachers had arisen in the church. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been considering what Paul tells us about these false teachers and about the things that they were teaching. And then here in verse 7, we discovered that among other things that were being taught by them, their false teaching involved a misuse and abuse of God's law. A failure to understand the proper place of the law and therefore the proper relationship between the law and the gospel. Paul says in verse 7, speaking of these false teachers, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Well, it's at that point now that we have one of these uh, Pauline digressions. If you read Paul, Apostle Paul's epistles, it's something that he often does a lot. He, he kind of digresses and, and begins to expand a little bit on something. And here, having pointed out that part of the problem with these men is their ambition to be regarded as teachers of the law, when in fact they don't have a clue what they're talking about, now it's as if he says, now hang on a minute. Let me just say something about the law while I'm at it. And so Paul breaks off now in our passage this morning to tell us something about the law. Now, he's, after he does that, at the end of that section, he's going to say in verse 11 that this is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And so as he mentions gospel, then there's going to be another digression. He's going to say, as it were, hang on a minute, let me say something about the gospel. And he's going to say some things about the gospel in verses 12 to 17. And then in verse 18, he'll get back to the false teachers again. And so this is kind of the flow that we have of the passage. But in our text today, it's kind of a digression. He's mentioned the law, these teachers of the law. They desire to be teachers of the law. They don't really have a clue what they're talking about. These things they confidently affirm. And now he said, let me just say a few things about the law. And so picking up at verse 8, he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so on down to verse 11. Well, as we begin to look at this, I want to do so by asking and then seeking to answer uh, certain questions from the text. And the first question is this, what law is Paul talking about? What law? Well, first of all, it's very clear he's talking about the Mosaic law. In in verse 8, he uses the article there, we know that the law, indicating that this is an identifiable law, body of law. He doesn't use the article in the next verse, but it's clear in his use of it in that verse that this is what he's talking about. And also he says these things in reaction to certain men who desired to be law teachers, which was a common way of describing teachers of the Old Testament or Old Testament law. But then secondly, more specifically, 
Paul has in view the moral component of the law. As many of you know, under the Mosaic Covenant, there were various kinds of legislation. There were ceremonial directions, uh, rules and statutes that governed the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and so on, worship ordinances and directions. These are commonly called ceremonial laws and uh, these were unique uh, to the Old Covenant sacrificial system of worship. There were also civil statutes governing Israel as a national entity. And this included, for example, case laws about the proper handling of of crimes in the land, proper punishment of certain criminal behaviors in the land. We might call some of these in-the-land laws that God gave to the nation of Israel, regulations about the harvest and measurements and paying off debts and so on. But then there were also moral laws, divine requirements for human behavior that trace back even before Moses to the time of creation. The moral law, the work of which was written in the heart of man from the beginning, Romans 2.15. And these were incorporated into the Mosaic economy and summarized in the form of Ten Commandments. Only the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God and spoken audibly by God to the people. And only they were placed in the Holy of Holies, within the Ark of the Covenant, under the mercy seat, where the blood of atonement was sprinkled. So the Ten Commandments held a peculiar place as divine, universal, moral law. Well, it's very clear when you look at the examples that Paul gives in verses 9 to 10, that this is what he has in mind, God's moral law. In fact, as many commentators have carefully pointed out, I'm not going to get into the kind of details some of them do, but they've worked through this list in quite some detail to seek to demonstrate that Paul gives us here basically, not exactly, but basically a summarization of the Ten Commandments. Notice he mentions various kinds of sinners here, as it were. And each of these roughly corresponds with one of the Ten Commandments and some of the most egregious violation of the commandment. Now it can help you to see that if you look at your Bible a moment and you begin with the bottom and you work your way up. He says knowing this that the law is not made but the law is made knowing this that the law is for. Now if you look pick up now at the end of the list of things he mentions in verse 10. He says it's for liars and perjurers a violation of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Kidnappers, a violation of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Fornicators and sodomites, a violation of the Seventh Commandment. Manslayers, a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Now that's certainly a violation of the Fifth Commandment, right? As well as the Sixth Commandment. The profane, uh, which would be an apt description of those who break the Fourth Commandment by profaning the Lord's day, the unholy is certainly a good term to describe those who fail to sanctify God's name and thereby break the third commandment, perhaps leaving then the terms ungodly and sinners as kind of a general description of those who break the first and second commandments. And then the list begins with a kind of summary description of all sinners of any kind. Verse 9a, knowing this, that the law is made for the lawless 
and insubordinate. And that describes every kind of sin and every kind of sinner. And the list ends also in much the same way when Paul says at the end of verse 10, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now those two general statements, one at the beginning of the list and this at the end, they form kind of a bracket around the whole. So, so though the 10th commandment, you may have noted, is not specifically mentioned, Paul makes sure that he includes anything that could be included in the realm of biblical ethics in these general statements bracketing the whole. And this is common with Paul. You'll read him sometimes. He'll, he'll do this another place. He'll mention several examples from the Ten Commandments. He won't mention all of them, and then he'll summarize. Like, for example, Romans 13, 9. He, he mentions several, and then he says, if there is any other commandment. And so he does something very similar here. So though it's not a perfect word-for-word quotation, it's not an actual quotation of the Ten Commandments, Paul is, it's very clear what Paul is talking about here. He's not referring to the ceremonial or the the in-the-land statutes given to Israel. He's talking about the moral requirements of God's law, God's moral law. The same law the work of which, he tells us in Romans chapter 2, is written in the heart of all men at creation, Jew and Gentile, and that applies to all men from the very beginning as created in the image of God. So the reference is to God's moral law. But now a second question, what does Paul say about the law? Well, let's break this down. First of all, Paul says, he tells us that the law is good. Verse 8, verse 9, excuse me. But we know that the law is good. The God's moral law is good. Now, you may remember in the context where Paul is also addressing, uh, though he does so in much greater detail, the the relationship of the law and the gospel uh, over in Romans chapter 7, Paul says basically the same thing. He says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. There's nothing wrong with God's law. Now, there's something wrong with us in the way we sinners respond to God's law, but the law is good. But we aren't good by nature. But there's nothing wrong with the law itself. God's moral requirements for mankind are holy, just, and good. They've always been, and they will always be. Listen, there will never be a time, dear friends, Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, there will never be a time in which it is not wrong and sinful to have other gods before the one true and living God, the triune God of the Bible, the first commandment. There will never be a time in which it is not wrong and sinful to worship the invisible God with images or according to human innovations not sanctioned by Scripture, the second commandment. There will never be a time in which it is okay to take the Lord's name, the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, the third commandment, or to neglect to observe the appointed day of rest, worship, and ministry, the fourth commandment. There will never be a time in which it is not wrong and sinful to dishonor your parents or to treat God-ordained human authorities in your life with disrespect, the eighth commandment, the fifth commandment, excuse me. There will never be a time in which murder is not sin, whether it is heart murder, tongue murder, or physical murder, 
the sixth commandment, it will always be wrong to engage in sexual relations with anyone outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage covenant, whether in thought or in deed, the seventh commandment. There will never be a time when it's okay to steal, the eighth commandment, or no, no longer a sin to lie about something or to slander someone, the ninth commandment, and it will always be a sin to covet your neighbor's possessions or to lust after your neighbor's spouse or anything that belongs to your neighbor or to desire in your heart to have or to do anything God forbids, the tenth commandment. It will always be wicked sin to do any of those things that God's law prohibits. And again, that's true whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. God's law is always God's law. And sin is always sin. And God's law is and will always be holy, just, and good. So first of all, Paul tells us that the law is good. But then he adds, it is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, that implies some things, doesn't it? It implies that the law has a proper use, but there can also be an improper use of the law as well. It can be used properly, or it can be used improperly. So let's consider this. We've seen that the law is good. And now, secondly, there is a proper use of the law. A proper use of the law in a way... Verse 11, Paul says, that is in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to Paul's trust. A way that's consistent with, a way that serves the cause of the gospel. So what is the proper use of the law? Now that's a large question. You know, Paul is dealing here in kind of shorthand form in just a few verses with issues that he deals with in several chapters in the book of Romans and and really in the whole epistle Uh, of the Galatians. So we have to draw somewhat from Paul's teaching as a whole regarding this subject of the law to get a clear answer to these questions. What is the proper use of the law? Well, we find in Scripture there are basically three proper uses of the law. And these have been described in various ways. The first is what is sometimes called the restraining use of the law. Uh, The knowledge of God's law, in other words, in a society at large, is often useful in restraining sin in that society. It has a civil use of holding back society from being as bad as it might otherwise be. It acts as a kind of external deterrent that keeps people from doing many of the wicked things they might wish to do in their hearts. It doesn't change their hearts, but it acts as a deterrent in society. That's that's one use of the law. The second use or purpose of the law is very important. And it's been called the condemning use of the law. This has also been called the spiritual use of the law. And and this is describing, referring to how the Holy Spirit often uses the law, and indeed this is one of the purposes of the law, to reveal to men their sinful condition. To convict them of sin, that they might be led to Christ for salvation. You see, it's the law that defines for us what sin is. Romans 3.20, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin, 
Romans 7, 7. I would not have known sin except through the law. It's God's law that shows us how lost and sinful we are and how impossible it is for us to save ourselves. It shows us that we are hopelessly undone, that we have ruined ourselves by our sins, and it shows us that our best righteousness is but filthy rags in God's sight and that if I were to get what I deserve, I would be in hell this very moment. Let me try to illustrate this. My grandparents, where I grew up, um, they had a dugout basement underneath their house. It was kind of creepy down there, a little bit scary. And um, when I was a little boy, I would go down there sometimes, and Mama, she, she kept the, the stuff that she canned down there, and I would have to go down to, to get it and to bring it up. And Well, let's imagine a basement or a cellar like that. And you may go down there many times when the light is very dim, just maybe enough to get around, shining in through some little small basement window perhaps. And everything seems fine. Everything looks relatively clean, but, but then one day you, you go down there and you turn on a light, a very bright light that illuminates the whole cellar in an instant. And suddenly you see that there are cobwebs everywhere and the cellar is full of dirty jars and piles of junk stacked over in the corners and everything is covered in soot and dust and you see creeping things and spiders and perhaps a mouse or a rat darting about. But you see, before that bright light was turned on, everything seemed okay. Well, the law is like that bright light by which the Holy Spirit shines on your life. And shines into your heart, showing you what a mess you are. The filth, the dust that is there, the sinful actions, the thoughts, sinful thoughts, and motives, and desires. Well, you see, this is a very important use of the law as it relates to the gospel. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And down in verse 15 of this same chapter, in First Timothy, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, as long as I think I'm okay, and I don't see myself as a sinner, I don't see myself as justly exposed to God's wrath, and that I can never make myself right with God by anything that I may try to do, unless I see that about myself, I will never come to Christ alone and put my trust in Him alone and experience this salvation that he gives to sinners as a free gift of God's grace. So this is one of the purposes of the law. This is one of the reasons the law should be preached, preached in the world, preached in the church, that the Spirit of God might use it to awaken sinners to their lost condition. So the law acts as a restraint upon society. That's one use. The law also has this condemning function, showing us our sin, showing us that we are lost and condemned before God, and leading us to desire salvation. But now, once the Holy Spirit, by the law, has awakened someone to their sinful condition, and once by the hearing of the good news of the gospel, a sinner has been brought to put their faith in Jesus Christ, what purpose does the law have then in the life of a believer? person's a believer now. 
in Christ. What purpose does the law serve then? Well, there are some who say it has no purpose for the believer at all. And we have nothing more to do with it. So this is the opposite extreme of legalism, what we sometimes call antinomianism. The law has nothing to do with us at all. But that's not the teaching of the New Testament. Paul makes it very clear in other places that the law is still useful for the Christian. Indeed, Paul can say in Romans 7, 22, that as a Christian, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And he says in Romans 7, 25, that I myself, as a Christian, serve the law of God with my mind. And in Romans 8, 4, he tells us that Christ was condemned in our place in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And when giving ethical instruction to Christians, he often points to the moral law and to the Ten Commandments. He says to Christians in 1 Corinthians 17, 19, for example, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. He says that to Christians. You see, after you become a Christian and are united to Christ, God's law is still God's law. And it is still good. It's not, oh, now we get away from that bad thing called the law. The law's not bad. It's never been bad. The law's good. It's still good. It's still holy, just, and good. And sin is still sin. But here's the important thing now. Here's the important thing that we have to understand. And it's this. That the Christian's relationship to the law is entirely changed from what it was before you trusted in Christ. Let me explain. You see, God's law, what does God's law demand? Obedience, right? There's never been a law that didn't demand what it demands. It doesn't demand that we try to obey or that we want to. It demands that we obey. God's law demands a perfect, sinless righteousness to be right with God. And the law condemns everything short of it. It condemns us to hell for our sins. So the law can never save us. It only condemns us. So here we are, and we have no righteousness of our own to make ourselves right with God. And our sins are upon us and unforgiven. We stand condemned by God's law to eternal hell. But you see, when a sinner comes to Christ and puts his faith in him alone for acceptance with God, he is freed from the law as a covenant of works as a covenant of works what do I mean by that by that I mean we are freed from the requirement to produce a righteousness of our own to make us right with God and we are freed from the punishment that our sins deserve and we are free from the law because Christ perfectly fulfilled God's law on our behalf And he paid the debt we owe to divine justice for our sins against God's law. He paid it once and for all upon the cross as our substitute. And therefore, when we are united to Christ by faith, we are justified before God now and forever. And that word, that means that though we are still sinners, we are counted perfectly righteous before the courtroom of heaven, and the law no longer condemns us. 
we are free from the law as a means by which we must earn God's favor or experience his wrath for the failure to keep it. Now this is what Paul means in various places in the New Testament when he says that believers are no longer under the law. We are no longer under the law as a covenant of works, but we are under grace. We are in the covenant of grace. Or when he refers to believers being dead to the law and alive to Christ. We're dead to the law way of seeking to be right with God, and we are alive to the Christ way, which is through faith in him. But, okay, but, I started, well, never mind. (laughs) That doesn't mean the law has no place in the life of the Christian, okay? Again, no, God's law is still God's law. God's law is still good, and God's law still shows us how our reconciled heavenly father wants his saved children to live for our joy and that we might bring glory to him. And that's the third use of the law, you see, the third use of the law, what is sometimes called the educative use, or uh, I like the grateful use of the law. The law still teaches the Christian, as God's saved and reconciled child, his father's will for him. It's no longer a means by uh, which we must strive to make ourselves right with God. We'll never be able to do that. We've already blown it. We've already failed. But having been freed from this requirement, having been freed from the law's condemning curse, enjoined to Christ by faith, our hearts are now full of gratitude and love toward him, and we want to bring glory to him, and we want to honor him with our lives. We want to live holy lives, and his spirit comes to live within us, producing and increasing in us that desire, and also enabling us more, uh, enabling us more and more to do so. Well, you see, the law is one of the means for the Christian by which we are shown then what a holy life is, what a God-glorifying life looks like. The law gives eyes to love for the Christian. So we are free from the law as a covenant of works, but the law still remains as the expression of our Father's will for his forgiven, justified justified children. It still shows us what is right as Christians. It still corrects us when we do wrong. And by doing so, it keeps us holding to Christ by faith as our only trust and repenting of our sins, and thereby growing in grace and godliness, but it no longer condemns us to hell. The law can never save us. It was never given for the purpose of saving us. The law can never justify us before God, and the law can never sanctify us and make us holy either. It has no power to do that. But the law does direct us as to how we are to live as God's forgiven, justified, adopted children by the promised help of the Holy Spirit until that day when we will be with Christ and we will be perfectly holy and sinless and like him for all eternity. So this is the proper use of the law. It has a restraining use in society at large. It has a condemning use, showing us our sins and leading us to the gospel, leading us to Christ. And for those who are now in Christ and freed from the law's curse, It has an educative and grateful 
use. So with that in mind, all of that in mind, how are we to understand this distinction between the law and the gospel? And how do the two relate to each other? My dear brothers and sisters, uh, dear Christian, this is where the battle is often fought in our souls when it comes to the assurance of our salvation. Confusion about this. This These are things you have to keep reminding yourself of these things. Think with me now as I try to help you. The law consists of that which God demands from us, right? What he requires from us, commands, directives. The law consists of that which God demands from us. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. The law says do. Do this and you will live. You will be saved. The gospel says done. And by faith you must say Christ has already done for me everything that is necessary for my salvation. The law comes and it says you are a sinner and therefore you will be damned. You must say yes I am a sinner But the gospel says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. The law says, only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but you are unrighteous. Yes, but praise God, the gospel says, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for me in my place, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Christ is my righteousness before God. Jeremiah 23.6, the law says, pay me what you owe. The gospel says, Christ has already paid the debt I owe to divine justice by giving up himself as a ransom for me. The law says you have not continued in all things that were written in the book of the law to do them. Therefore you are cursed. Indeed. But the gospel says Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for me. Galatians 3.13. The law says obey the commandments of God. And you must do so from a heart of love without fail or be damned. The gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you will begin to truly love him. And the more you you trust and love him, the more indeed you will begin to obey him. But not to earn his favor, but because of love and gratitude for what his grace has done for you. And by the renewing work of his spirit in your heart. You see that? You understand? So law is good. Secondly, there is a proper use of the law that is consistent with the gospel. But then our text also implies, thirdly, that there is a wrong use of the law, an improper use of the law. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, implying it can be used unlawfully. It's kind of a play on words there. Using the law unlawfully. In a wrong way. And in the context here, the implication is that this is exactly what these false teachers were doing. So how can the law be used improperly? 
Well, there are a number of ways that could be mentioned. And these false teachers were misusing it in one or perhaps all of these ways. Usually they all come together. First, one improper use of the law is to make it a base for engaging in useless speculations and debates about matters that go beyond what the law actually says. And as we've seen in the past weeks, this is one of the things that they were doing, right? Engaging in all of these speculations and debates and arguments about matters related to the law, what Paul describes in other places, foolish disputes, contentions, and strivings about the law. Strivings about the law. Something like this was apparently one of the characteristics of these false teachers. Now immediately one thinks about the Pharisees that Jesus had to deal with. They had all kinds, you remember, of complicated man-made rules and regulations that they had added to the law and attached to God's law. Man-made rules not contained in God's law, but they had elevated them to the same level of God's law, and keeping those rules was a way of making them feel righteous before God. It gave them a false sense of security before God, and some of those rules were utterly ridiculous. For example, if you, if you found some dirt on your dress on the Sabbath, you could brush it off as long as you don't rub it. If you rub it, that's working on the Sabbath. That was one of their rules. I could, give you, I could just go on with rules that they had like this, that the rabbis had developed. Keep you from even ever getting very, not even get close to ever breaking the law. So they had elevated these rules and, these, this, and, and, God's, and God's people had this tremendous burden of all of these man-made regulations upon them to keep. All kinds of silly things. Also, the many rules they developed about eating and how to properly wash your hands. If you're really going to be holy, you have to follow this particular ritual in the way you wash your hands, in the washing of cups and platters. You remember Jesus had confronted them about this and so on. And the rabbis were constantly debating and arguing about stupid things like that and nitpicky details missing the whole point of the law. And actually, in many instances, nullifying and neutering the law by their traditions. Well, apparently something like this was part of the problem with these false teachers in Ephesus. But then secondly, the law is also improperly used when it's viewed as a means of attaining salvation, a means of making yourself right with God, meriting a right standing before God. The idea that the way to be saved is by keeping the law. And the context seems to indicate that this was apparently part of their problem as well. Seeking to be justified before God, whether it be on the basis in whole or in part, by the works of the law, which cannot be done because we're all sinners. And the law condemns us as sinners. Now, when someone seeks to be right with God, whether in whole or in part, on the, in other words, maybe they say, well, I believe in grace, but... Partly my works. but When someone seeks to be right with God in a way that has anything at all to do with keeping the law, on the basis of good works, one of two things happens. One, it will lead them eventually to despair. And despair often leads to hardness of heart, which leads to just giving yourself over to sin. There's no use. I give up. Who cares? I can't do it. 
Or if it doesn't lead to despair, there's something else that often happens. It leads people to bring God's law down to their own level. It leads them to interpret and apply it in a way that is less than what the law actually requires so that I can keep up some sense of peace and some good opinion of myself. Now again, you may remember this is something the Pharisees did and probably what these false teachers were doing as well. When the law said, you shall not commit adultery, the Pharisees said, well, as long as you don't actually sleep with another man's wife, you're okay. But no, the law goes deeper than the outward action. It extends to the heart. As Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery before God in your heart. And and Jesus is not making a new law there that wasn't already in the Old Testament. Think about the 10th commandment. Do not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, it goes on to say, right? Jesus was not giving a new law. He He was applying the law in all of its force and all of its spirituality. The Pharisees had diminished it as, and, to, and had relegated it to something that they could keep and feel good about themselves and feel like they, they were worthy of God's favor because they were keeping it, but they weren't keeping it. In a similar way, such a person may say, and the Pharisees did this, well, I know I'm not perfect, Yes, I fail sometimes, but if I try to be a good person and I do my best, God will be pleased and Christ and his work on the cross will make up for the rest. So here you have a person who's partly trusting in his own efforts to keep the law and partly trusting in Christ. Going to be, say, partly by works and partly by grace. Well, let me ask you this. How do you know that you're doing your best? And let's be honest. Have you ever really done your best? Are you doing your best? How do you know that your sincere but faulty efforts are sincere enough that where you've done your part, you've done enough of your part, and now Christ will do the rest? How do you know that? You can never know. Plus, the fact is, you haven't. They're not. Because the law doesn't demand that we try our best and then Jesus will make up for the rest. No, the law demands perfect, perpetual obedience to all that the law requires. Otherwise, if we're seeking to be right with God in that way, we are under its curse. Well, you see, these are all ways of misusing God's law. And it's very likely that these false teachers were guilty of all of these because in a sense, they're all just examples of the same problem. And that one problem is the problem of legalism, the problem of self-righteousness. It's also a problem of a wrong view of God. God is a God and I must earn his favor by the things that I do. You know, antinomianism, legalism, they're really one side of the same coin. They both look at God's law as something evil and bad and not good. Because antinomian says, oh, you know, it's great when I can get away from the law because it's such a bad thing. I don't have to worry about it. The legalist says, oh, the law is a heavy burden and I have to struggle to keep it so that God might accept me in the end. But both are viewing the law in the wrong way. The law was never given to save us. 
And it does still remain for the Christian as a rule of life, but not as the means by which we're made right with God. Do you understand? Maybe? You need to understand this. Okay? This is so important. We consider what Paul tells us about the law. The law is good. There's a proper use of the law. There's an improper use of the law. All right, now let's consider thirdly and briefly what Paul means then when he says that the law is not for a righteous person. He says in verse 9, but for the lawless and insubordinate. Now, I think we're in a position now to best understand what Paul means by that. Paul now goes on to say, knowing this, the law is not for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. And then he gives this list of examples, examples of different ways men and women violate God's law. And then he summarizes it in a way that captures any other kind of sin people may commit at the end of verse 10, when he ends the list by saying, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. But back up to the beginning of this list. What does Paul mean when he says that the law is not for a righteous person, but for the lawless, for sinners? Well, some have understood him to be saying that the law is not for those who have been justified by faith. It's not for believers. And they are righteous in the sense that they are counted righteous in Christ. And so the law is not for them in any way. Now, it is true that we are counted righteous in Christ. But I think that interpretation entirely misses the point that Paul's making. For one thing, the law still has a purpose for the Christian, as we've seen. And then also the contrast here is not between being declared righteous and being condemned. That's not the contrast, justified or condemned. The contrast is between being righteous or being a sinful person. Between the righteous and the lawless and insubordinate. So the term righteous is not being used here in a legal forensic sense, but in an actual experiential sense. Righteous in the sense of a person who doesn't sin. A person who is free from sin. The law is not for righteous people. But for the purpose of, uh, for the purpose of proving ourselves to be righteous people who deserve God's favor, the law is for sinners. To show us our sins. And I think Paul uses the word righteous here in much the same way Jesus uses the term when referring to the Pharisees. You remember after the conversion of Matthew, the tax collector, and he was so happy and so thrilled with what Christ had done for him, he threw a big party. And he invited all of his, his sinner friends and tax collector friends to come to this party that they might meet Jesus who had saved him. And so Jesus is there. And you remember the Pharisees saw this and they complained, this man eats with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus said, what did Jesus say to them? I did not come to call the righteous. Did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what did Jesus mean by that? Was he saying, now of course you Pharisees, you are righteous. Uh, You don't need to repent. No, the problem was that they thought they were righteous. He's speaking of them in the way they thought about themselves. They were righteous in their own estimation of themselves, and that's what kept them 
from seeing their need of Christ and kept them from repenting and rejoicing in the good news of the gospel that Matthew and his friends are rejoicing in and Jesus is rejoicing in. They couldn't get it because they thought they were righteous. We hear in our text, Paul is reminding Timothy that the law is not for the righteous. It's for sinners to show them their sins, to convict them of their sins. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, the law was added because of transgressions. God gave the law at Mount Sinai not because men are righteous, but because men are sinners. And in order to increase in men the awareness of their sinful state and that we might be taken off of all self-righteous trust in our own efforts or our own supposed goodness and that we might hear the good news and receive it as it is indeed good news for sinners. Glad tidings of great joy that God has provided a Savior for sinners like you and me in Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on later to describe himself, he says, you know, I'm in this list that I just gave you. He says in verse 13. He goes on to describe himself in verse 13. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save, and save the righteous, but to save sinners of whom I am chief. The law condemns men as sinners in order to prepare them for the gospel. And these false teachers were missing this. And part of the reason for this is they thought they were righteous. And they viewed the law as a tool. And teaching the law as a tool, uh, their fanciful interpretations of the law as a tool, a means of promoting themselves and propping up their own self-righteous opinion of themselves. And their teaching promoted the same thing in others. And by doing so, they were not using the law, verse 11, in a manner that is in accordance with the gospel. Well, brothers and sisters, our time is gone. But I want to just close by asking you, do you see this distinction between the law and the gospel? Do you see how the two work together and complement each other? but they're not to be confused with one another. Let us learn from this, on the one hand, that the law must be preached. First, it must be preached to awaken sinners to their need of the gospel. Men must come to see. They must come to be convinced of their obligations to the God who has made them and of their sins against him. And they must see that they are lost and helpless and condemned before a holy God. The law must be taught to our children. As well, it's one of the means that God uses to bring them to Christ. But on the other hand, we must be careful and remember that the law can never save people. It will never change people. It will never make them holy. And that includes you. And that includes, again, your children. It's not enough to teach your kids right from wrong. It's not enough to educate people on morality, even God's standard of morality. And we need to do that, but we must also teach them the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ who came to save helpless sinners because it's only the gospel that provides the solution 
to our sinful condition. Only in Christ is there forgiveness and a right standing before God freely given to those who believe. And it's only when we are in Christ, united to him by faith, trusting in him alone and his finished work on the cross that we find the motivation and the strength by his spirit living in us to begin to live the kind of life that brings glory to God. Not to earn his favor, but because we have received his grace in Jesus Christ. If you understand these things, my friend, how is it with you personally? Are you still trying to make yourself right with God? By your own efforts to do right and to keep the law? You know, pastor, I wish I could have a, you know, a dime for every time I hear something similar to this. You know, pastor, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm trying to be a Christian. I need to do better. I know, but I keep trying. Maybe one day I'll finally get there. No, you don't become a Christian by trying, but by trusting, trusting, trusting in God's promise to sinners in Jesus Christ that whoever looks to him for mercy, he will receive them and he will save them. Him that comes to me, Jesus says, I will in no wise cast out. You don't become a Christian by trying, but trusting in Christ and his free promise and his finished work for sinners on the cross. His perfect obedience, trusting in him alone. Hey, you, you can do that now. You don't work your way up to that. If you think, well, let me go home and think about it and I'll try a little bit harder at this, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Christ and the gospel is put right down where we are in all of our sin and misery. And Jesus says, come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of of life freely. Well, may God grant that if you never have, that you will, and that you'll do so even this very day. What a wonderful gospel for a wretched, dark world that God has given to us. What good news. The light has shined into darkness in the coming of Jesus Christ. There is hope for any sinner whoever you are today. It doesn't matter what you've done. You saw that list? Murderers, fathers, mothers, sodomites. Just go down through the list. It doesn't matter what your sins are. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And he's able to, And he's willing to save you. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray you would help us to grow in our confidence in these things, our our understanding of these truths, that we might continue, Lord, to believe the gospel and to believe confidently and firmly in the gospel message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. 
We pray now that you would bless our time as we hear the testimony and baptism of our sister and we thank you for your goodness to us. We commit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.